So I am very, very happy to be here. It's been a long time, maybe a year, maybe more than a year, since I've taught up here. And uh, just when I walked in, and everybody was, or a lot of people were already sitting, and then I sat down and I sat with you, and I looked around and then I saw, oh, there's somebody I know, and there's another person that I know. And there's already such a sense of ardency. Everybody is really sitting and really praying away. And uh, I really, it really was a wonderful space to sit down into the middle of. And I was looking around, and I think, oh, there's so-and-so. I hope she's doing well. There's so-and-so. Oh, I hope he's happy. And I assume that everybody is saying some variation of may I be well, may other people be well, may the people that I love be well, may the planet be well, one way or another. And I have this sense of ardency and a whole room of praying people. And so as I'm going around, I'm getting happier and happier. There's maybe a half a dozen, eight, nine people here who I already know. And then I think, oh, good. And then I realize that even the people that I don't know are doing the same thing. And so I'm thinking, oh, good. And I realized that it's already a lesson in doing that, of realizing that you look at people and you realize that everybody wants the same thing. Everyone wants to feel safe. Everybody wants to feel content. Nobody wants to be miserable or be planning something nefarious. Everybody is sitting here praying for peace and happiness. And that's a possibility for human beings, that we're inclined to do that that we can say to each other, listen, that's a good thing to do. Let's all do it. I was uh, remembering that one of the first spiritual books that I, spiritual books in the the sense of the generic spiritual book that I began to read uh, four decades ago is called The Way of the Pilgrim. And it's a story of a man in the Russian Orthodox tradition who's a pilgrim whose practice is journeying and being a pilgrim. And his teacher's instruction to him as he went out on his pilgrimage was pray without ceasing, pray without ceasing. And I remember being inspired by by it as I sat as a retreatant on retreats, on mindfulness retreats, on uh, loving-kindness retreats, which by and by I probably will say to you what I believe, which is all the same, and that what everybody is trying to do is to arrive at a contented heart that is cultivated and maintained in its contentment by wisdom. By wisdom and gratitude for a life, actually. But that gets away before me. But just looking around and realizing that I feel so picked up by the sense of a whole room full of people that I know and I don't know. I know that in your practice here this week, you're just about up to the introduction of the neutral person. And I love that a concept of a neutral person. I once said years and years ago, I don't think there's any neutral person. I really don't. You look at a person in whatever circumstances, and you make a decision about them. They took too much food. They took. The, they didn't take any food. They're showing off. They, you know, they this, they that. 
the who wears nail polish on a retreat. Uh, they always have little, little thoughts about people all the time. So I said, nobody wears, she says that she wears nail polish. Anyway, uh, I said to a group of people, a group of practitioners, I don't think there's any such thing as a neutral person, even the neutral people that I pick out in my own practice when I'm doing a designated practice like this. My dentist, I don't think of her except when I'm at the dentist. I like her fine, but you know, I, but when I think about her, but I don't think about her every day or pray for her every day, nor the person who's the postmistress in my, in my post office, nor the person who drops the paper in my in my driveway. The woman who cuts my hair. When I see them, I'm happy to see them. So they're not neutral because I like them already a little bit. And my friend, um, my friend Joe Button, who is now a retired flight attendant with uh, United Airlines after having flown for 50 years from 22 to 72 when she retired, without ever a bad experience on a plane, she says. I like to tell people that. When I was teaching one day about there's no such thing as a neutral person, we have a feeling about everybody, a little bit even. And she said, that's not true. She said, when I, it's not my experience. She said, when I stand up in front of a plane of 300 people and I talk into the microphone and I say, fasten your seatbelts, I mean it for everybody just the same. I don't mean it for some people more than other people. And I think that that's life, it's like that in life, that we could say to each other as we, get, as we recognize each other as a traveler in space and in time, that for everybody the voyage is a little bumpy, the trip is a little bumpy. Did you know that the word dukkha, Maybe you heard this week or somewhere else that the word dukkha, the word that's used in Buddhist teaching for difficulties in life, suffering, painful things in life, comes from the root word that means the uh, axle of an ox cart. The axle of an ox cart is the root of the word dukkha. And I think to myself, I think what it means colloquially is not that life has difficulties and painful things, but that it's a bumpy ride, this whole life. It's okay, and then it's difficult, and then it's okay, and then it's difficult. And we all have a bumpy ride, and when Joe says to a plane of 300 people, fasten your seatbelts, she said, I mean for everybody to get there, because we all have to get there together. It's a journey for all these people. And I think the sense that I am part of a journey of people through this thing called life. We're all at different stages in this journey through our lives. I look around the room and there are very many people younger than I probably. One guess is that nobody's older than I because I'm old now. But that we're all making it through this life and the unborn baby that's here with us making its way into the world, to feel part of the world full of people is a tremendously comforting thing. We're just all moving through it in our own rhythm and to think, may we all be peaceful and happy and come to the end of suffering. So sometime back when I was teaching Metta Retreats, like the one that you're on, um, 
a person came up to came to see me on one of these one one on one meetings like ten of you have had with me today. And it was several days into the retreat, just as you have been several days into the retreat now. And so people had already had instructions uh, from the managers of what to do and such and such. They had instructions on how how to manage the lunch line and the dinner line and instructions what to do in a fire and instructions about how to... Uh, meditate how to do either the saying of prayer phrases as we're doing here or the attention to the breath or intention to the body feelings and the sensations of the body as you work such so as all kinds of instructions about rules for living together in a silent community so there have been lots of instructions. So uh, I was kind of taken by this young man because I thought it was so sweet that we've been there for several days giving instructions. And he came in to see me and he looked at me really seriously and he said, what are we doing here really? What are we doing here really? Really? Because he'd say, we're sitting, we're walking, we're saying phrases, da 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 and I don't actually remember what I said, what words I said, but if I were seeing him now, I would say, we are working on habituating our minds to kindness. Because in a life that's inevitably difficult, and inevitably difficult, inevitably challenging to everybody in it, meeting it with kindness is the most comfortable way to be in the world for oneself and for everyone else with whom one interacts. This is the wisest way to behave. It's the antidote to the difficulties that life brings with it. And I actually think that sometimes people say, I'm saying these phrases over and over and over. I'm really tired from saying these phrases. Anybody feels that way? I had it with the phrases. It's not about phrases. It's not about arm wrestling your mind to the ground. It's about quieting your mind enough so that it sees really clearly that life is difficult for everyone. People are heroic. We do a whole life. We have disappointments left and right in the best of lives. We have disappointments. In the best of lives, there are challenges. There's no way to get through a life without difficulties. And to be able to do it with grace, with kindness, with generosity of spirit, with a heart that reaches out and joins other people either in actual physical company or in wishing them well, to be able to see one's life as a gift, a temporary gift that's going to run out, but as a great privilege to be a person in a life. I don't know what I said to him, but I wish I'd said that. (laughs) That that's what it's about. And that's really what all the instructions are. I forgot uh, in my bringing myself over here today, but I'll be back tomorrow morning, so... I'm telling you so I'll remember to bring my new teaching aid that I've been bringing with me to teaching recently. You too can have such a teaching aid. You can get one in Book Passage and you can get it as I did in the uh, Legion of Honor Museum. 
Uh, and you know how all over the world you can buy a snow globe in every kind of a city in the in the, in the souvenir stores, and you get a globe, paperweight, I suppose, and you shake it, and it gets all full of snow, and then you put it down on your desk, and the snow falls down, and you say, oh, look at that, Eiffel Tower, or oh, look at that, Tower of London, oh, look at that, Great Wall of China. I have a fog globe, so I say to people, this is my San Francisco. They don't have snow in San Francisco. This is my San Francisco artifact, and I shake it up. It's a great. We can imagine it. I'll bring it tomorrow, if I remember. You shake it up, and it gets a big swirl of dark gray cloud in it. <laughs> and then you put it down, and what happens? What do you see as it settles down? Who's going to guess? Golden Gate Bridge. Well, you don't see the Golden Gate Bridge. You see four little dots of orange. And you say, oh, Golden Gate Bridge. Which is what we mostly do in our lives. We see little dots of something. And we say, oh, it's going to be this or that. And so it is the Golden Gate Bridge. And so that's what it's going to be. But it's a very important thing to know that so often the mind gets habituated or worried about it might be this or it might be that, that we see that before it actually is. And that one of the things about the idea of waiting to see clearly what's going on, really the best definition for mindful awareness is the ability to know moment to moment what is happening here and what's happening in here in response to it in me. And what, therefore, is called for, this is the really important part. A lot of people say it's being in the moment. It is being in the moment, knowing what's there and what's here, in order to, I really, like, I have a very big soapbox about that, not just to know, in order to know what is the response that I can make in this moment that will not create suffering for myself and other people and will, in fact, alleviate suffering or at least not make it worse for myself and other people? It's about what can I do now in order to... I think that the end of the, the whole discovery of myself over all these years is the really important part of my mind is the one that keeps in mind I have in the end of it that the Four Noble Truths are true, that life is difficult for everyone. I have um, my friend uh, Tony Bernhardt has a wonderful way of writing them out in really beautiful Buddhist language that uh, life comes with pain and unpleasantness. I love that for the first noble truth. Life comes with pain and unpleasantness. That, that When I first heard it, it was more like life is suffering. And I thought, wow, that's so, that's so really pessimistic. Not every moment is pain and suffering. There are some really beautiful things that happen in life. There are extraordinary things. The crocuses are already coming out, and it's just January, and they look just like crocuses, and they're growing in the same place that they did last year. That's amazing. All of life is amazing. There's some beautiful things that happen. People have babies that look like them. Imagine. Uh, <laughs> 
And if they have good health care, they live long and healthy. Imagine, they're wonderful things. And in life, there is pain and difficulty. First noble truth. Second noble truth is um, the pain and difficulty is unpleasant. And the um, aversion to the pain and difficulty makes it more unpleasant. Makes it more unpleasant. Even when the difficulty or the challenge to being in the moment serenely is not something that scares you. It's something that really titillates you or seduces you. In a minute, I'm going to tell you the story of the Buddha sitting under the bow tree in his night of enlightenment. Unless somebody told the story so far. That's a really important story. I'm going to tell that story. Should I tell the story now? Or should I finish? Third, I will. Third noble truth is we don't have to make it worse. Second is we make it worse because the the uh, the challenge is already painful. We make it worse painful by being upset about it. I shouldn't have this challenge. Even if something is exciting. <laughs> Maybe while you're here, you saw somebody had a better sweater than you did. That's a warmer and somehow of a style that's more cozy. And you think, oh, that's a great sweater. I wish I had that. And then you're sitting, and then you think, why didn't I think to take my other sweater from home? That's just like that. Now I have to do without that sweater, and I'm cold. And if I'd chosen that sweater, I'd be better than I am now. It's very hard to leave discomfort alone, just not make it worse uncomfortable. The, or I need something more. I, I, I need to have pizza for lunch, not more cauliflower. We have cauliflower every day. Why are we having pizza? The cauliflower is much better. You know, this is what's here. The third noble truth is we don't have to make it worse by insisting that it be otherwise. We could say that's how it is here. They have a lot of cauliflower have more cauliflower than pizza, as a matter of fact. But, you know, you're going to make it through. It's just a week. And the fourth is how do I manage to cultivate a mind that has like a grown-up attitude about life? This is what's happening. What should I do? How can I live my life impeccably? I love that word. You don't read it much outside of Buddhist texts, but impeccability. Integrity. Integrity. Maybe at the end of the time we'll read the Metta Sutta together and talk about the fact that Buddhist practice begins with perfection of integrity, that insight and learning how to work with the mind is second to establishing a base of morality and integrity. And the fourth noble truth is that there's a way to do it and instructions for how to do it. And every time you... um, well, you probably just stay up here. You don't go down past the prayer wheel. But if you did, you would see that it's got those eight different sides of the prayer wheel. And each of them are one of the, one of the uh, uh, path parts of what's known as the Eightfold Path. But they are so integral to each other. It's hard for me to see any one of them not as a permutation or a combination of all of the other ones. But I'll tell you the story about the Buddha under the tree. 
You probably have heard the beginning of the Buddha's life, that he was born Siddhartha Gautama uh, in, uh, in a province where his father was a prince or a head of the province, a person of some importance. And then in a mysterious way, he never did, according to the accounts, realize uh, that the wonderful life that he led, where all his needs were met, in an environment where no one seemed ever to die is not the way that the world actually is in a story that, uh, well, I was about to say in a story that isn't true. But I'm really thinking over about, I'll tell you some more about it. I'm thinking about miraculous stories that aren't manifestly true or they aren't verifiably that it happened that are so significant in shaping how people think that I'm prepared to say they're true. Why not? So, here's a true story. The Buddha in that life... (laughs) This is the most useful thing. I love this image. The Buddha goes and he studies with one particular teacher who's known to be a meditation teacher. And he develops such skill of really being able to control his mind that he can exist by sitting in hot sun and cold and eating one rice grain a day. And at the end of it, he has tremendous control over his mind. And both of those two different teachers that he sits with for a period of years uh, presumably say to him, you're very good at this. Why don't you stay with me and be my co-teacher? And he in the story says, no, I can't do that because uh, even though I have been here working with you and I honor you and all that, I still have not figured out why human beings suffer so much in life. And that's really what I went on to. Why are human beings so despairing of the fact that life has old age and sickness and death? How can they live otherwise? How can they not get confused by anger? I haven't figured that out yet. So I need to do that. And he goes off and sits down by himself under what's called a bow tree. And he sits down in a lovely... uh, Let me see which... Is there a Buddha back there? Oh, there. There. Oh, good. There there he is with his hands in the right, more or less. I'll, I'll take it that that's what it is. He sits down in the story and says, I'm sitting here. He then establishes himself in perfect equanimity, which means that his mind is very still, very focused, very alert, and very balanced, really uh, unshakable equanimity. Unshakable equanimity comes to be understood as the place in which Wisdom naturally arises. You actually get to see. Remember I said about the fog obscuring the globe? <clears throat> there's, no, there's no fog in a mind of unshakable equanimity. You see what's happening. You say, okay, I get it. Also, that unshakable equanimity allows him to feel such ease that he can radiate out from him really intense feelings of loving-kindness, of well-intention, 
of all the all the phrases of blessings that you've been saying to yourself just in such extreme unshakable steadiness that he is protected by it so it says in the in the descriptions like an uh, like an invisible shield protects the buddha and he sits down and in all the children's <laughs> picture books where this particular scene is described, you see it says he is assailed by the forces of Mara. For the Mara is the disturber of mind peace. And here he has this in unshakable peace of mind, unshakable goodwill. And here comes Mara galloping in with her horses and armies and spears and arrows. And uh, they're wonderful children's books. Some of them are coloring books where you can color them in. Here come all these forces of frightening things. And the Buddha is said to have said, I see your forces, Mara, and I am not afraid. He puts his fingers down on the floor, on, on the ground. I, have, I am not afraid. I have a right to be here. I love that because I think to myself, we all have a right to be here. We all got born. We're a person. Why not? I have a right to be here. Here come these fears, these things that stir up fear, spears and arrows and what are ordinarily frightening things. I have a right to be here. I'm not afraid. Meantime, so here he is and he's not afraid. Here, from the other side, come up the forces of erotic persuasion. Whatever it is that might divert the aspiring Buddha, the aspiring enlightened Buddha, that might be titillating or seductive and all the other things that easily distract the mind. And he's still sitting there. He says, you know, I see your forces, Mara, and I am not afraid. And he continues to send out waves of goodwill towards all these forces of disruption. And all the forces of disruption are beaten. They disappear. They turn into flowers, and they fall on the ground all around surrounding the Buddha. I love that picture of them of the Buddha sitting and all of the disturbances being transformed into flowers. So there are descriptions of that you can read. Here he is with all the flowers and he gets up from where he is. He presumably sits the rest of the whole night. He says, I'm not getting up from here until I'm fully enlightened. And I say to people, because it's true, uh, when I have been sitting in a kind of a way that you are, in a really dedicated way, and I'm having a bad time in my mind or my body or my antsiness or whatever it is, sitting and I have the thought, you know, I really can't sit here another second. I imagine everybody here has had the thought in this couple of days, I can't sit here another second. I had the thought, I can't sit here another second. Then I put my fingers on the ground and I say, I see you, Mara, and I'm not afraid. I'm not getting up. And I, when I tell that to people, 
Maybe you'll laugh too. In the past, I've told that to people. I say that and then they laugh, ha, 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 as if to say, you're not putting yourself in a category with the Buddha, are you? That if you'll say that, that you'll be absolutely enlightened right after that. And I say, why not? Why not? First of all, nobody's going to take off, give me demerits or take off points for hubris. I mean, what, what if I say to myself, I have tremendous confidence in myself, not because I'm special, but because the Buddha was a person, and we're people, and we have minds the same, and they could be liberated. If I didn't believe that, how could, why would I be doing this? So why not have confidence in yourself? It's good for you to have confidence. I had a teacher once, um, one of the monks who came from uh, Burma, who I talked to in, a, in an interview, and I was describing uh, some kinds of um, oh, uh, very um, unusual kinds of, uh, oh, uh, I'm trying to think about, bodily sensations of joy that felt like I was effervescent, you know, like a, a carbonated drink or something. All my body was full of all this major energy. I thought, maybe, ha-ha, this is it. I'm about to get enlightened. <laughs> it's not that. I mean, it's not that. It means that your attention is very, very focused. It's a fun thing to feel, but it doesn't mean you're enlightened. It's just a fun thing to feel. But Upandita said to me, you know, that's not enlightenment, but he said, it's a good thing that's happened, that that's happening to you because, first of all, it's pleasant and it has you interested. And it also means that your attention is now becoming pretty focused. That's one of the, one of the many ways that you can tell that your attention is really getting focused. So he said, now, certainly I'm not mocking his accent. I was very, I tell you that I thought, I said to myself for years after this, he said, um, this experience should give you a lot of fate and confidence. I thought, fate and confidence? <laughs> then I realized he was meaning faith and confidence. So I would tell myself, and I would tell people that were studying with me, this should give you a lot of fate and confidence. <laughs> then I would tell them what that meant. But I loved him for telling me that. This isn't it, but this is good for you to have, and it's good that you have it, and I admire that. So why shouldn't any of you say, I'm not getting up, I'm staying here. I'm just staying here. Other people do it, why shouldn't I? You already came. That's enough reason for faith and confidence in yourself. Confidence in yourself. Now I got it. Faith and confidence in yourself. <laughs> confidence in yourself. You knew in advance. Many of you are new to this whole practice. You signed up, really sight unseen. You look on the website, it looks good, but they come here and it's a unique experience. Don't talk to anybody for a week. Don't look at them too much. Everybody looks at everybody, but don't look too much. You know. <laughs> and sit and walk and sit and walk and don't read anything. Don't write anything. Don't keep a journal. Don't do anything. Just sit with yourself. It's a hard thing to do. And pray without ceasing. It's really important to know that the pray without ceasing part means do whatever technique you're doing really wholeheartedly. Really wholeheartedly. If you have taken on doing the practice of repeating blessings 
all the time, then really repeat them all the time from the moment you wake up in the morning until the end of the night. Maybe not when you're listening to the Dharma talk, but when you're walking back and forth, when you're washing dishes or wiping tables or taking a shower or doing anything else that you do here. I really, really um, enjoy doing that. Once I had the thing, I, once I had a rhythm to what I was saying, when I came in here today and sat down and looked around and got so happy about noticing all of you praying without ceasing, I could hear my mind start to say, may I feel protected and safe, may I feel contented and pleased, may my physical body support me with strength. May my life unfold smoothly with ease. That's what comes up most these days. I have had periods of saying different things to myself. One of the things that might be interesting for you to know is when my first teacher, Sharon Salzberg, introduced me to metta practice. She said, say these phrases. Say, may I be free of danger. May I have mental happiness. May I have physical happiness. May I have ease of well-being. Anybody else had that instruction? You you didn't give that instruction. No, nobody. This is 30 years ago, 35 years ago. So I said them over and over and over again. She said, "No, no quitting. You have to do all the time. So I did all the time. And my mind became really amazingly calmed down. Which reminds me of something else I want to tell you. But I want to tell you, it made me amazingly calmed down from the zealous repetition of the phrases. I did them for myself. And when she gave me instructions to do them for her, Oh, for my benefactor, and obviously she was my most immediate benefactor, so I thought, well, I should do for Sharon. And I said those phrases for Sharon once or twice. I thought, this is not at all interesting. I came on this retreat because I'm in pain. I really am into praying for myself. When I said to myself, I really went because it was a very difficult time in my body and in my mind and my life, and I really did not feel well in my body and in my mind. So I said them with such zeal. May I be free of danger. May I have mental happiness. May I have physical happiness. May I have ease of well-being. May I be free of danger. May I have mental happiness. May I have physical happiness. May I have ease of well-being. May I be free of danger. May I have mental happiness. And on and on and on. And my mind settled down. Now, the reason it does it is, I think, physiologically, by repeating and repeating and repeating, it really pulls the attention in, and all the peripheral thoughts, including the thoughts about what was happening to me, the thoughts about not feeling good, the thoughts about what didn't feel good from moment to moment, the thoughts about why I've been in, why have I been in this practice for ten years and look at where it led me down this primrose path to nothing and I'm in a worse shape and what about my teachers I didn't have any of those thoughts because my mind was too busy saying my phrases and pushing all those other thoughts out and the mind settled down 
and I felt better. And I thought, hmm, hmm, look at that. That there is space in the mind. That that chatter and clutter doesn't have to go on all the time. And it didn't bother me that I said, may I be free of danger, may I have mental happiness. I didn't even think about what the free of danger was supposed to mean. Now I, now I think about it. I, may I have mental happiness? It's in Pali. I said it in English, but like mental happiness. At the time, I thought, what does that mean? Now I think, yeah, mental happiness, I get that. Physical happiness, I get that, you know. Uh, even including that physical happiness can happen when your body is old or it hurts here and there or that somehow I'm hopeful that when I'm very old or at the very end of my life physical happiness will be the ability to sit up and look at people or talk to them or take a drink of water or whatever at the time that's why I never said, I never liked, I never took on saying, may I be healthy, because I knew it wouldn't last me the rest of my life. I wanted to say something that I could say so many times that it would be ingrained in my mind and work until the end. So may, may my body be strong. May I feel protected and safe. May I feel contented and pleased. May my body be, may my physical body, may my physical body, no, no, may, I, I, I don't actually say that, so I have to figure out what it is. That, may my physical body support me with strength, that's it. May my life unfold smoothly with ease. I said it that way because it's a limerick. And I could remember it. Did that for a lot of years. Now I am saying, may I be free of enmity and danger. Because that's really the Pali, that phrase. Because really what I'm thinking about is that the key word is free of enmity. May I be free of enmity. May I be free of aversion. May I be free of negativity. My practice, I tell people these days, is being mindful all through the day of the arising of some aversion, some negativity, some enmity to a person or to the moment or the situation. Because unseen, that gives way to a whole explosion of fears and worries and plans and otherwise confusing mind states rather than some clear understanding of what should I do now. You know what I also tell people now? I say, I would like a mind like Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. That's what I want. I want a mind like Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. How many of you saw the be- A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood recently? It's fantastic, isn't it? It's fantastic. So for the people who didn't see it, here is Fred Rogers. He's a, uh, he's a minister, actually, 
And in this particular movie, which is the third of the Fred Rogers movies that have been out in the last few years, Fred Rogers is played by Tom Hanks, who does a wonderful job of it. And uh, the story of Tom Hanks, Fred Rogers, meeting a man named uh, Tom Juno, who's a, a, a kind of cynical, young, brash uh, journalist for Esquire magazine, who was sent to interview Fred Rogers and uh, goes off to do it somehow under duress, doesn't feel like, nah, this is a nothing kind of assignment, and gets changed by meeting Fred Rogers. And that part is true. And the article that he wrote for uh, Esquire 20 years ago became the basis for the movie. So it's Tom Hanks and somebody else playing the young journalist. But talking about being present for other people as your practice, present for who out there could I serve at this moment? Who could I take care of? Who could I care about, including myself? Who could I console? Who could I support? There's a wonderful scene in which he's uh, Tom Hanks, or the character who's Fred Rogers, is swimming, laps in a swimming pool. So that's what he does for his physical workout. Many times a week, goes to a pool and he swims laps. And the voiceover when he's swimming the laps, is each time he puts his arm out, he's saying Donald Rothberg, uh, Pamela Lear, uh, Wendy Nash, Lash, any of your names. He's got all his people that he's praying for. What we're doing here is we're praying for people. We're praying for people both because we're inclined with love towards them. And we feel better when we think about people and hold them in love. It's absolutely the antidote to feeling pain about the people or about ourselves. I felt better when I said all those, may I be free of danger, may I have mental happiness, may I have physical happiness, may I have ease of well-being. I was really into do, saying that because I really, I really had, I ardently wanted to feel better. And then when I started to say, as you've had the instructions, think about a, a, um, a cherished mentor, or, um, a person that you're really grateful for, a benefactor. So I started to think about Sharon. And I, as I said, I thought once, twice, and I thought, well, that's enough of that. I don't have any, that doesn't have any particular inspiration in it for me. No juice. I'm not really into it. I am really into feeling better myself. And I thought, you know, maybe that's not so nice, you know. I'd have to see, well, is that really very nice, generous of you? So, okay, I'll say a few more for Sharon. Okay, I'm saying. <laughs> said a few more. I think this is not going anywhere. I, I, I actually want this to be alive. And I think the, all the words in the scripture when you read about it say ardently wishing. I ardently wanted to feel better. And it's the ardor that really pulls your attention together, pushes all this other stuff out, 
the mind settles because it's not distracted with all this side commentary. When it settles, we see how things are, really, and what we can do. And what we see always is that life is like this. The first noble truth is that everybody, for everybody, it's a bumpy road. And the difference between pain and suffering is so crucial to understand. Not everybody has the same amount of pain in life. There are obviously all the things that we can say, the distinctions that make life, the living of a life, more difficult for some people. But everybody, regardless of where they are, who they are, what's their story, everybody has a possibility of facing their life and not making it worse, not augmenting what's happening with stories about how it should be or getting caught in the imperative that it should be different from the way it is. My grandfather, who came to the United States when he was uh, 25 years old, he was the eighth of nine children, on a really, in a tiny village in uh, in Pol- in Austria, and uh, with a a tiny piece of land, the eighth of nine children scraping together one way or another from a, 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 their garden and whatever few chickens they had and whatever kind of thing that business could keep them alive, came to this country and and got worked as a laborer all of his life. But he had a very um, um, wise attitude about life. I thought I realized that from being very young. I, w- I would watch him at various times. Something really terrible would happen, uh, like my mother's death. Uh, so his his first daughter died when she was 47. And uh, he was so bereft at the funeral that I, I, I was bereft. She was my mother. But I was really worried about him because he was so distraught about it. I didn't know I was going to get through it. And a few days later, he said, well, okay. He uh, uh, returned to the work that he did. It was summertime. And my uh, aunt and her uh, uncle and their children ran a uh, 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 a cottage community in Maine. And my grandfather, who was then in his uh, late 70s, was the caretaker there. He was a, a laborer and a handyman. And he went back after the mourning period. He went back with them and he said, well... What are you going to do? That's life. And he went back and he worked the rest of the summer. And he lived on in his life. And he married again. He married twice again. He outlived all three of his wives. And he said, what are you going to do? All three of his wives and one of his two children. And he would be terribly upset when something happened. And then he'd pull himself together and he'd say, what are you going to do? That's life. Which I think is a. I thought when I learned about the Buddha that, that that was somehow in the category of saying these things happen when you're alive. You lose people, 
and you feel it deeply. And then you get over it and go on. No idea how long. People sometimes say it's been years and I'm still grieving. I have no idea that my grandfather was terrific to be able to do it in a week or do whatever he did in a week. He didn't get over it in a week. He never again, he loved my father, but he never again visited my father in my father's house because he couldn't bear to go into the house that his daughter had lived in. So he never got over it. But he went back to his life. What are you going to do? That's life. To be able to have a mind that thinks, what should I do now that does not create extra suffering? That doesn't create extra suffering. And I think, what can I do that makes it easier for other people? Because then I'll feel better. I love that story about the Buddha radiating uh, loving kindness out from him and it protects him. I think that's the same as Mr. Rogers radiating loving kindness out from him. And people love to be with him and children trusted him. There's a part in one of the Mr. Rogers movies, can't remember if it's his last one, or one of the actual tapes from 40 or 50 years ago when uh, that are extant that uh, went into the early movies. But there's a, there are particular there are particular episodes where um, he talks to the children who are watching the, the, the TV program and uh, without being upset, quiet-minded, how many people never saw Mr. Rogers? Never saw Mr. Rogers' episode? How many people did? Oh, okay. So just bringing everybody up to speed. <laughs> they always started with him opening a door, coming in with his red sweater on, or no, with something else on, coming in, taking off his jacket, hanging it up, putting on his red sweater, taking off his shoes, all very slowly. And then I, and sometimes when I was watching one of the the films about it, I would think to myself, remembering back my, I, he was actually after my children, but remembering back seeing him earlier and thinking, I think I used to think, pick up the pace, you know? And the whole, <laughs> and the whole idea is that he didn't pick up the pace because where are you going to go, you know? And you've got little kids. And they feel and they feel at ease with him because he didn't pick up the pace. And and the one the the episode that really moved me is he would say he said to his children that are that you don't see but he's talking to them out the television, and he said so I'd like to talk to you about a word because it's probably a word that you heard your parents talking about today, and it's a very terrible word to hear and. Maybe you don't understand what it means. And the word is assassination. And you might have heard that today from your parents. Somebody asked me when I told this the other day, they said, who's assassination? I said, it doesn't matter who's. There was in a period of time, some prom- a lot, three at least, assassinations quite close in time of important American figures. And he said, you know... Sometimes people get very mad, and sometimes you get mad too. And sometimes get people get so mad 
that they do very terrible things to each other in that sort of a way. So he became a trusted explainer to children, particularly if those children didn't have people at home who could explain to them. And it doesn't happen very much. Sometimes it happens like that, but it's not something that usually happens. So you don't have to be frightened. And it's, I don't remember the end of it, but it, it, if I wouldn't make up the end. So it's important when you feel really, really angry to think to yourself, wait a minute, I'll take some deep breaths and think it over before I say anything. As an adult, you all say to yourself, time and again, wait a minute. I, I was telling my colleagues today at lunch, we haven't seen each other in a long time, I said, I have new instructions. I'm telling people the main instructions are T-I-O and G-A-G. And the T-I-O is think it over before saying anything. And the G-A-G is get a grip. These are the kind of things that happen in life. Take a breath, figure it out. They're not just happening to you, they happen to everybody. And each of us gets a chance to figure out how we're going to do this life. I see that it's time for me to finish. I wonder if I said everything that I felt like saying. Probably not. Ta-ta-ta. You know, the story about the, the Buddha under the tree is really a, the paradigmatic story. I didn't really, maybe I didn't realize it as much as until today when I was writing up what I was going to say. I was thinking uh, of the Buddha sitting under the tree and I thought he, and spreading out this kindness all over the world like a protective shield. And I was thinking of the line in the Metta Sutta, radiating kindness over the entire world. And I've read that line in the Metta Sutta do you want to read together, and that'll be the end of what we do together. If you have, if you have the sutta with you, it is said that the Buddha. It's on the back of your chant sheet. So it is said that the Buddha at one particular time, said to all his monks in attendance, you say it with me, this is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied, unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud or demanding in nature. Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. Stop, stop. I want to tell you, that piece that we just read, those are the Buddha's instructions on morality, ethicality, leading a life of integrity. I like very much that they end with the instruction, don't do this, don't do this, do this, do this, do this, and then says, not doing the slightest thing, in case I missed anything, 
not doing the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. That's the teachings on sila, ethicality. Wishing, this is what to do. Wishing, in dyingness and in safety, may all beings be at ease, whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another. Even as a mother protects her child, her child, her only child, with a boundless heart, should one cherish all living beings, radiating kindness over the entire world. Ta-da, there it is. <laughs> Spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depth, outward and unbounded, free from... It. Wait, 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 stop. That's the instruction up to there of um, training the mind. This is training the ethics. This is training the mind. Wishing universally may all beings be at ease. That's the mind training. We are training our minds to kindness. We're habituating our minds to kindness. What you get from, what I get from Mr. Rogers is his mind is habituated to kindness out of a deep understanding that everyone suffers. So kindness based on wisdom. So now the end of it. This is the wisdom that comes up. Free, freed from hatred and ill will, whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding. By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires, is not born again into this world. So, there's the wisdom of it. By the way, you notice it says standing or walking, seated or lying down. Those are the only four positions we could ever be in. So it's the same as meaning all the time, just do that wishing. But it's much more poetic to say standing or walking, seated or lying down, because there's no other way we could be except leaning or kneeling or something. But really, that's, that's it. Do it all the time. So it's a pleasure. Thank you very much. Have a wonderful night, and I'll see you in the morning. <laughs> Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.